You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome, everybody. This is session number three in um, our class on uh, the practical laws of kashrut, which are meant, which is meant to uh, help those of us who are you know, looking for a refresher uh, to deepen our understanding. Maybe are um, in the process of thinking about making our homes kosher. Just want to just want to understand the process better, uh, and also uh, anybody uh, who wants to serve as a mashkiach, as a kashrut supervisor for our kitchen here. Uh, um, this class is designed for, for that, too. It's really the same body of knowledge. Um, uh, and uh, for those who want to become a kashrut supervisor here, uh, um, I, I think it's important that uh, you you uh, either have been present for or uh, if you're, you know, uh, unable to be present for but are, you know, following along in our home studio audience, uh, that, uh, that, that um, you uh, listen to all of the uh, recordings uh, and then um, for anybody who actually wants to be a mashkiach, I don't know if I'll have like a formal test, but maybe a, a, a conversation uh, a, or something like that. Uh, I haven't decided what yet. What is the date so we can prepare for What is the date? I don't know. I don't know. Let me, so if you, if, if you want to, if you, if you want to uh, fill that role, then... Um, then uh, learn this whole book in three days. Then learn that whole book in three days. Uh, let's, let's, let's talk after after that. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Because there is a class in Maryland, and I was looking at that, but it's mostly for rabbis. Yeah, I don't think. Listen, I, and there's one that that uh, that the uh, rabbinical assembly is offering for rabbis. I don't think it needs to be so involved because most of the issues uh, that we deal with in our kitchens are really um, uh, about the surprises. I mean, it's really you know, it's it, some of the issues we'll be covering today, but you know, the the a lot of a lot of the practical knowledge and and the intricacies of uh, of, of kashrut issues, you know the, the the hardest part of it is how you you know make a kitchen kosher for the first time. Maintaining a kosher kitchen is much easier than it is uh, than 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 transforming a kitchen to be a kosher kitchen. Um, you know and and uh, and also um, you know. Uh, we we're, we're in a golden age of communication. So if you are a supervisor for our kitchen and something happens that you are concerned about, there's right. Some of this is just sort of like knowing which issues to look for, um, even if you don't necessarily know the answer. And if you catch an issue but don't really know what you should do about it, you'll have my cell phone number. You can call me right. So so you don't have to be like out there in the hinterlands alone. Um, you, you know, right? You have right. You have a lifeline. On the days that you're here, right? Exactly, right? right yeah, if I'm not right, if that's if I'm not here, if I'm here, then it's even easier, <laughs> right? So, um, so the first two classes uh, really dealt with um, uh, two issues. The first were um, uh, uh, ma- what's that? I was going to say the animal. Right. So that was the second class. The second class. Sorry, the first class dealt with machlotisurot, right? Uh, uh, the kinds of the categories of foods that are uh, themselves not permitted. The different kinds of animals that the Torah forbids, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the second class dealt with um, uh, issues related to uh, cooking, 
and 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 uh, primarily we didn't really get into issues of meat and milk yet, but um, but a lot of the issues regarding uh, cooking and uh, um, uh, that that dealt with uh, forbidden foods that come into contact with permitted foods. Um, uh, so some of those issues will be the same tonight. So there'll be a lot of refresher uh, for for those of you who don't remember. Uh, and a lot of overlap, um, but uh, but anyway. So that was what the second class dealt with was was issues of cooking as it related to those forbidden foods. All right. So what we're going to deal with tonight is a is is a similar category of thing in the sense that uh, it mainly has to do with um, with issues of cooking things together. Uh, that's at least where we're going to focus on. Um, and a lot of the issues of cooking things together are similar to the issues of cooking uh, uh, for, forbidden foods with uh, permitted foods. But this is, a, I guess, a unique category in that um, what we're dealing with here are uh, really two permitted food items, right? So, um, uh, which, is, which is important because what it means is that, um, uh, that, that a lot of the prohibitions we're dealing with uh, don't technically apply to uh, uh, dairy that is cooked with or mixed with somehow um, something that is inherently forbidden, right? So this is not about putting cheese on your bacon, um, even though that, of course, has its own issues. Um, uh, but this is about putting cheese on your hamburger, right? This is about, or, um, or putting cheese on your buffalo burger, which is a different category of kosher food. They're like domesticated kosher animals and non-domesticated kosher animals, but they're still kosher animals. Um, so, uh, so, so, that's, so, so that's really what we're dealing with here. Two permitted foods that get mixed together, and once they're mixed together, they render each other forbidden, uh, and maybe the resulting product as forbidden too or usually the resulting product is forbidden to. Um, so that carries within it a little bit more complexity. Okay. So we're going to start there. So um, the, the prohibition uh, on, um, on meat and milk derives from a uh, biblical passage uh, that is repeated uh, in the same language three times. Right, the passage is Lo Tevashel Gedi Bechelavimo. Do not boil a kid in its mother's milk. Okay? Now, the, from a contextual standpoint, um, that's a pretty narrow prohibition. Right? So, um, it's, right, a kid in its own mother's milk, it's actually not even clear. It's talking about milk. It might be talking about fat, right? Because there are certain kinds of fats that are uh, uh, forbidden. The, the word chele, it's actually, we, it's interesting how we pronounce it because we pronounce it in the way you usually pronounce fat and not milk in Hebrew. Milk in Hebrew is chalav, right? And fat is chelev, right? And uh, the prohibition is actually even though it's normally understood to be the milk of its mother. Um, that's a little bit of, you know, just uh, neither here nor there. But it's spelled the same way, it's spelled the same way just different uh, vocalization. Yeah. Right? And, uh, and it's, and it's uh, uh, tevashel, um, which uh, is also in itself kind of limiting, which, you know, we, we, we usually translate it as uh, cook, but it's probably more like boil, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to like roasting 
or frying or or some other kind of thing, right? So it seems like it, it on its surface, contextual seems kind of narrow. It also, by the way, you know, de depending on how you view where it comes, where where it appears in the Torah, um, seems to relate to um, idolatrous practices. Right, so it's not even clear that this was meant originally. You know, if you're if you're original, you know, original intent kind of person, uh, it's not even clear that originally it was meant to be a you know prohibition um, on normal consumption. It might have been intended to be a prohibition on a ritual act. Right, you can't do this because uh, because that's what that's what the goyim do. Right. Right, exactly. Right, and it, and and it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I suggested this once to a biblical. So what I'm about to say is only one of Knopf's crazy ideas. Uh, but if you remember in the book of Genesis, there's this story where um, three men uh, appear in Ab at Abraham's tent. Turns out later that those men are actually angels. Uh, it, it's unclear whether uh, Abraham knew or didn't know when he encounters them that they're angels. But let's say he knew that there was something special, something divine about these beings that showed up on his door. It's interesting to note what he has Sarah prepare for them. What does he have Sarah prepare for them? Veal and, and, and milk, right? Veal cooked in milk, right? So my theory is that this was a, uh, a, a normal dish meant to serve to the gods, right? To the pagan gods in the ancient Near East. That's my, that's my theory. It's never been uh, corroborated by outside biblical scholars, but such as it is, right? So anyway, so that's where, that's, contextually, that's the original passage. The rabbis, on the other hand, um, didn't read it that way, okay? Didn't read it really in any of the ways that, that uh, we were talking about. Um, because what the, what the rabbis say is this, that, uh, that the Torah doesn't contain anything superfluous, Right, that uh, that if the Torah wanted to prohibit something, all it needs to do is say it once, right? And if it says it multiple times, it's actually uh, saying different things each time, right? Or adding to our understanding of it each time. Uh, so the the Talmud actually is filled with with the fancy uh, rabbinical school word for this is exegesis on this passage from uh, from twice in Exodus and once in Deuteronomy. Uh, and they, they interpret it in a handful of ways. The first way that they interpret it is to um, expand it beyond its limited contextual scope, right? So what they do is they say, okay, you know, uh, um, uh, not only is it tevashel, uh, 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 but it's any kind of cooking, right? And then not only is it gedi, but it's uh, but it, it but that was just an example of something, right? They use it to expand gedi to any kind of kosher animal, right? Um, and chelav uh, they they use it to expand. It could be chelav uh, shel ima acher acheret, right? It could be uh, the milk of another mother, right? It doesn't have to be the milk of its own mother. It could be some some other. Uh, uh, goat, goat mother's milk, right, or some other kind of animal, right? So they expand the definition to any kind of cooking, to any kind of kosher animal, and uh, and and any kind of milk, right? Any any milk uh, um, animal milk, I mean. um, right? So, but by the way, that means that things like almond milk don't count 
in uh, in chalavimo. It also theoretically means that uh, that human milk, breast milk, doesn't count uh, in chalavimo. Although I, I don't necessarily uh, recommend uh, frying your steak in breast milk, but it, it at least technically doesn't include that in the prohibition. Um, it's uh, it's it's only dealing with uh, with kosher. So th- that's one way that they expand it. Is that it's talking about um, uh, about uh, any kind of cooking. Uh, with any kind of uh, uh, kosher meat um, and uh, and any kind of milk, um, and any combination of those things, uh, they also, by the way, in the any kind of meat category, we talked about this a little bit. I think our first session because people were uh, and I sent out a paper about this, um, but the rabbis also expanded the definition of uh, of of meat to include poultry. Uh, they did that because what how they took this passage. Um, was to mean that it was only kind of giving one kind of example of a popular dish that involved meat and milk together. But since it was something that they understood to refer to any kind of meat with any kind of milk, then it has to include things that people normally consider to be meat. And people, at least in their time, and I think still in ours, normally consider fowl to be meat. Right? I mean, you go to a barbecue restaurant, you're, like, you're surprised if they don't have barbecue chicken, but you're probably not as surprised if they don't have salmon. Right? So wasn't there a time where chicken was, was considered to be part of no. in the Middle Ages? No. No. Sure? I mean, it's possible that there was a community or something like that that I don't know of, but, uh, but, but uh, the, the Talmud has it as a matter of question, but it, it's pretty settled law by the, by the medieval period. Um, and, and it seemed, and, and from the, from a, uh, from a not even too nitpicky reading of the Talmud, it's a, um, it's, it's pretty clear where the, where, where the Talmud comes down on the issue. It's really, it's really only a matter of the, what the Talmud presumes that it's forbidden to cook fowl with milk. Mm-hmm. The question that they are really wrestling with is: it, is it biblically forbidden, or is it um, a fence around the law that the rabbis impose? Um, and it seems pretty clear that they come down on the side of it's biblically forbidden. Um, but I suspect that that's a matter of debate. But in any event, um, it's at least rabbinically forbidden. But um, uh, it, it, it's pretty clear that that. It's uh, that they considered it to be biblically forbidden. And how, how did they justify what Abraham served to the three strangers? And, yeah. Abraham didn't have Torah yet. Uh, yeah, that. yeah. um, That's why. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, an, it's an interesting. It's an interesting thing because they also, for, you know, the Talmud also from time to time, or Orthodox Jews also from time to time, of course Abraham observed all the Torah, right? Yeah, so. They have a way to get around that, though, too. They serve the dairy first and then the meat. Right, right, right. So, right, there are interpretations like that, or that Sarah didn't actually make it. That, right, so anyway, whatever. You know, but yes. So there are lots of reasons. Right. right, right. Um, okay, so that's, that's one way in which they expanded it. The other way in which they expanded the definition was, uh, what, or, or the, the meaning of the verse, was to say that each of the three repetitions prohibits a different kind of act related to meat and milk together. Um, that uh, um, it refers to cooking meat and milk together, to eating meat and milk together, and to benefiting from mixtures of milk and meat. All right, so let's, let's start with the third thing, because for our purposes, I think it's the... Um, least relevant one, all right? So benefiting from, and you can see on my like little you know hand drawn chart here, uh, uh, some of this. Um, uh, uh, 
You could use it as a placemat. Yeah. Uh, you could use this as a placemat. That's right. Blow it up a little bit because it's hard um, to eat. So, um, benefiting from a, a mixture of milk and meat um, refers to what it what it sounds like, right? Anything that uh, you know that you that you, that that you're profiting from or enjoying from um, that, right? So, benefiting can be things like. Um, we haven't gotten, you can't cook it together, but let's say you didn't cook the cheeseburger, um, but you came into the possession of the cheeseburger and somehow, I don't know how you came into possession of it, you bought it, whatever, because, right, you, yeah, that's fine. You bought the cheeseburger, right, and, uh, and, and now you have it, you can't eat it, you don't want to, like, put it up for decoration, your, decoration in your house might be benefiting from it. So you're like, okay, well, I'm going to give it to, you know, my, my friend, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, some Mr. McGillicuddy, and uh, um, and but you can't do that because that's benefiting from a mixture of meat and milk, right? Um, it also extends to things like, right, because you're benefiting from it, Monica, in the sense that um, that by giving uh, it to somebody else, um, your um, uh, 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 your uh, in, enjoying the act of giving a gift, right? Um, you, it, it so it sustains and supports the friendship, right? That sort of thing. That's not allowed? That's not allowed. Wow. Not a mitzvah. Mm. So, so not a mitzvah. If, if, uh, if a meat pizza gets delivered to your house by mistake, it's basically done. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Right? I mean, like, you couldn't go to your non-Jewish next-door neighbor and say, you yeah. guys want this pizza? So that's an interesting question. I mean, um... I, because are you really, well, I mean, if you really say, okay, they'll think nicely of you in return. Yeah. Um. But it's a shame to throw it out. I know. Like uh, yeah. Cheeseburger, you know? Um, <laughs> right. So what I, what, I, what I would say is, um. What about a homeless person? We're already playing yeah. stuff the rabbi. Right. Um, what about a homeless person? You know, somebody. Homeless? No, you know, I understand. So I understand that. So you gotta, you gotta ask you yourself. Gotta yeah. Right, you gotta ask yourself. Um, uh, um, you know, what what value outweighs the other? I think that these are, are worthy questions. Uh, you don't want to waste food. You don't want to. Because money. Uh, uh, well, so but the, the idea that it as is a waste of your money yeah. is actually a, a a clear question of benefit, right? Because uh, you don't want to feel like you've wasted money. Right, so um, and and giving tzedakah to somebody also is a benefit, right? So you know, so you have to weigh that out. Um, on the other hand, you're making really you make really good points. Right? Yeah, but this is only in the cases where they're already mixed. So you could have a grocery store that sells separately a case of cheese. Correct. And oh yeah, sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Right. This is this is once milk and meat are are mixtures, right? Okay. right? Um, but certainly, uh, you can't. Uh, sell mixtures of meat and milk right. together, right? Um, uh, or manufacture uh, mixtures of milk and meat. Um, all right. So, but the issue of benefiting from it in, in the sense of like, okay, let's say we, you know, if we're if you're a mashgiach of the kitchen here, and we accidentally made a totally treif, you know, pot of something, right? Um, do, do are we required just to throw that out? Uh, or can we, you know, bring it down to uh, Monroe Park and, and feed somebody with it? Um, I would say let's cross that bridge when we get there. <laughs> I was told to throw it out. If it happens in the kitchen, it's to throw it out. I, I would generally say that yes, but but maybe not depending on what exactly happened. So, um, uh, I have a question. Yeah. This is for my daughter. We had an interesting summer together. Um, 
Her thing is, she does. We don't do milk much dairy, anyways, but we do almond milk. I use Riches, you know, which is supposed mm -hmm. to be non-dairy. Like the coffee cream, yeah. Yeah, and also, um, she used non-dairy cheese. Right. Is that allowed? Because she was doing that all summer. Yeah. So, uh, so that that is allowed, um, so long as those products are actually non-dairy, right? In other words, like sometimes you find an almond milk that has a, you know, a, a, a hexure with a D on it uh, for various reasons. Some of those reasons, as we've talked about in previous classes, might be uh, reasons that actually make the product dairy, and some of them are, are sort of, you know, uh, in my opinion... Uh, CYA. What? CYA for the hexure. CYA? Yeah, cover your Right. Yes. Right. Um, I would. I would. I would say. 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 P Y M. Pay your mashkiach. Um, <laughs> My favorite was finding out that non-dairy creamer really wasn't non-dairy. Right. So right. So that's so. So sometimes you encounter that. But presuming that, uh, assuming that it's actually not dairy, then it, then it's fine. So there are some. Like chicken frick -a -z. Sure. Sure. There are. There are some. There are some. There are some authorities uh, that that suggest or say you have to um, put some kind of sign next to the thing to you know if you're serving it uh, whatever to make sure that people know that it is um, uh, actually not right. So you leave the wrapper of the of the you know dairy-ish thing that you use out there or whatever. Um, the the Talmud itself actually they didn't have wrappers, but they you know so they but they had almond milk. And, uh, and so that you can, like, cook your, you know, meat in your almond milk, but put a couple of almonds out next to the thing so people know that it was made with almonds. So, um, so that's a, so that, I, I, I put this in, uh, in, in the uh, question of eating, um, which is called marit ayin. Uh, and marit ayin literally means um, it looks bad, okay? So, uh, what? I was going to say that, right. that, you know, there's the issue of perception. Right. There's the issue of reality and there's the issue of perception. So, if, you know, if your rabbi is seen eating, even though it's a, it's a totally kosher cheeseburger because the cheese is right. soy cheese, the, you know, people watching don't know that necessarily. And right. So there'll be a sense of perception that there's been right. a sin committed. Right. Um, so, so context uh, is... is uh, goes a long way for that, right? So it, it depends on where the rabbi's eating it, right? So if the rabbi's eating that that at like a synagogue function, I, I doubt that there's really a Mari dying issue. Yeah. The rabbi's eating it at a Trafe restaurant, uh, it's different, right? right? Um, so that would be also something like the pizza, for instance. Um, you know, you have the tofu crumble that looks like hamburger, but it's tofu. Right. So if you put that on a cheese pizza, then it's okay. It's it's, o it's okay, but what I would say is you have to be concerned with the marit ayin thing, yes. right? Um, so the, the you know the, that it looks bad. So what you know? So the the um, well, no, not necessarily. You could first of all, even if you keep it at home, you still might have that problem, right? You still should tell the guests or whoever, right? Um, you know, just so you know, this is not right, and uh, and and but also if it's if, even if it's here, I mean, I would be comfortable with us making, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, what'd you call it, um, trafe approximations or uh, um, here, so long as people knew. I mean, I think that people generally would assume, trafe right? Simulation. Trafe simulations. That's it. Um, <laughs> I'm not trafe, but I play one at shul, right? Uh, I play it at shul. So, um, so we have trafe simulations. I think most people would 
would presume at synagogue that that pizza that they're eating is not actually meat on cheese pizza, but it's still probably worth uh, um, making it clear somehow. And putting the proper, right. that's a good idea. That's right. a very good idea. I didn't move yeah. Okay. Okay. All right, so that's, the, that's I think, the easiest one is, is benefiting from, from the mixtures. Uh, the uh, the uh, the, um, the the next one is is also really not as relevant to our um, to what we're going to talk about today. Although we'll talk about some of the issues um, in a little bit, but uh, but that's the one of eating, okay. Um, and the reason it's not as relevant for us is um, uh, um, that. Um, uh, we're, you know, we're really dealing, if we're dealing with like supervising kitchens and things like that, we're, we're going to be dealing more in the realm of cooking. But eating is important too. Um, eating, the prohibition on eating, for example, is, um, is uh, um, uh, you know, why um, you are supposed to have separate uh, uh, tables for meat and dairy or at least to um, cover tables, you know, have meat and dairy, uh, different tablecloths. Um, some of you have even separate dining areas, um, although you, know, you have to ask whether you know, when we'll talk about some of the issues, uh, you'll start to see why some of those things may not be necessary. You know, signs of, if you have two people, um, e- if, I'm, if I'm eating next to somebody, uh, one of us is eating, you know, we're friends, right, and one of us is eating meat and one of us is eating dairy. Um, one is supposed to put like a, a, a sort of barrier between you so you're not tempted to sort of like stick your fork into the other person's plate, that sort of thing. Um, a meat mechitza. A meat mechitza. Uh, um, what, what if you have a meat dish and your spouse has a dairy dish? Are you allowed to kiss? Are you allowed to kiss? Uh, well, rinse, out, rinse out your... Rinse, rinse, rinse out your mouth. Rinse out your mouth first, um, right? And the and the uh, uh, the and, and the issue, the prohibition on eating, is where you get um, the questions of the waiting time between eating milk and meat or meat and milk. Uh, generally speaking, there uh, is not a required waiting time between milk and meat, but there is a required waiting time between meat and milk. Um, and just to kind of put it out there now, um, there's, uh, there's actually substantial uh, disagreement or dis- differences in custom in uh, the waiting time between meat and milk. But for going back to the milk and meat one, some people require you to like rinse your mouth out or wait a little bit of time between some milk consumption and some uh, between some milk consumption and, and and then meat, but not for everything. So you know like things that you know uh, milk products that are likely to sort of like you know linger in your mouth, that sort of thing. Um, uh, would uh, you, many people would say you need to rinse out your mouth first? But uh, but it's, but um, but the the idea of you know waiting between meat and milk is actually a fence around the law, right? So all we're talking about here are really fences around the law. Um, so uh, it, biblically, it's not required to wait between eating even meat and then eating milk. You can't eat them together. You can't eat mixtures of them. But you, uh, but biblically, from the from literal what the Torah forbids, even the rabbis understand what the Torah forbids. You don't have to wait between eating meat and milk. The uh, it's a long-standing rabbinic right. These are fences around the law. Fences around the law mean things that you do to avoid violating the actual law. Uh, and it, it makes sense in order to avoid violating the actual law that you would have some kind of waiting period so you don't, like, mix the flavors in your mouth. 
um, and end up actually eating the things together. But from the actual literal, what the Torah forbids, the rabbis say that that, that it's not um, that it's not required. But what, yeah, I was always told about six hours. Six hours. Right. So so that's the prevalent custom in today's Orthodox community. I'll tell. I'll, I'll back it up and say where where it comes from. So um, there is uh, um, debate in the Talmud. Um, about uh, about how long you're going to have to wait, um, and it's really based on a um, on a sort of like um, uh, what do you call it? Like a, an anecdote um, that a Talmudic rabbi has about how he's you know so much uh, less pious than his father, right? And his father would wait 24 hours between eating meat and milk. He said, "I you know I'm I'm not as good as he was. I only wait." from one meal to the next, from one meal to the next. So what's interesting about that is um, that from one meal to the next, um, you know, when, in, in that rabbi's language might have meant something very particular, right? Because people didn't tend to eat, like, snack between meals. They didn't tend to eat one after the other, right? So he probably meant, you know, from, the, from, like the, 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 from lunch to dinner, or actually probably... Um, uh, they may not have really eaten lunch. They 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 breakfast and then they ate something you know um, uh, toward the end of the workday, um, and so so it may it may very well have meant for them six hours or seven hours or eight hours or something like that, um, and but the uh, uh, you know but the, but there's plenty of you know but the it depends on whether you're inclined to um, read. This is why it's really interesting and sort of contemporary legal conversations, Supreme Court, whatever, you know, sometimes conservatives uh, like to say that they go by original intent and some by they, sometimes they like to say they go by a strict interpretation, right? Those, are, those can be two different things, right? So the original intent of, of that rabbi's statement in the Talmud may very well have been, you know, six hours, eight hours, something like that, but strict interpretation could very well say, okay, you know, all you need to do is say birkata mazon or something like that, and then you can go ahead and eat whatever you want, right? Um, and there indeed are rabbis who say just that, right? Or um, uh, the rabbis that, because of that, uh, say one hour, there are rabbis uh, because of that say no time at all, you just need to say birkata mazon. There's a whole range of dis- differences of opinion. Um, but now I would say the prevalent customs are as follows. The prevalent customs are... Um, uh, among uh, Sephardic Jews um, and uh, and Orthodox uh, Eastern European Jews, uh, the prevalent custom is to wait six hours. Um, among uh, Jews that trace their ancestry back to like um, uh, original Dutch Jews, uh, the prevalent custom is to wait one hour. Although I've never met such Jews, I'm sure they exist, but I've never met them. Um, uh, so, the, but the, uh, in, in, among Dutch Jews, the prevalent custom is one hour. Um, there, there's a long-standing custom among German Jews uh, to only wait three hours. Um, part of the um, uh, uh, thinking for how that developed was, you know, in winter months, uh, the span of, uh, of of daytime between the meals that you eat was much shorter, uh, especially as you get you know further north, um, and so they all ended up only waiting because they did that in the winter. They also allowed it in the summer too, um, but uh, so that's that's what that because and that is more than likely how the prevalent custom became three hours in the conservative movement because the conservative movement by and large was a German movement at least in its inception. Um, 
So that's the prevalent custom, prevalent custom there. If you ask me, I, I wait three hours. Um, but again, all of these are fences around the law, right? What we talked about in terms of benefiting are fences around the law, what we're talking about in terms of, right, benefiting literally is um, selling somebody, right? Uh, but, it, but, it, but, you know, but if you, uh, uh, um, but if you you know sort of expand that out, right? You have sort of emotional benefit and things like that, right? So um, you know, feeding your animals mixtures of milk and meat, right, is considered to be benefiting from as a as a fence around the law, right? The the primary one that we're going to talk about tonight is uh, cooking milk and meat together, right? Uh, and that, of course, is literally right. Literally, you know, taking your steak and and poaching it in butter or something like that. Um, but there are all kinds of fences around that, around the law. Um, you know, so, um, uh, so, for, uh, uh, so for example, right, uh, in some, it, 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 we'll talk about some of the particularities of this, but in some senses, uh, separate silverware, separate dishes, uh, separate utensils, separate vessels, um, separate kitchens, certainly separate kitchens. Uh, a lot of these are uh, are fences around the law, ways of um, uh, making it easier to obey the um, the actual law because you're you know you're you're creating so much buffer space uh, between um, between what you're doing and the biblical practice itself. Um, all right, so so that's that's where we'll we'll jump into now. Any questions so far or comments? Just. code everything because now they have green pens and then red pens and that's what right. I've done. Right. And, you know, because I have the stickers, but the stickers they wash away with the dishwasher. So it's a much easier to color code. Could you see my green tongs yeah, for my tongue. for my yeah right. <laughs> right. So that's because I had a big house and we the house actually was owned by a Jewish family, and so it was perfect. They had a kosher kitchen, so I didn't have to oh, know. Nice. It was, yeah, I missed it. Mm-hmm. But now this is a condo, and it's been trickier. But I did find a way to buy new pants in different colors. So then everybody knows. Now in my house, my husband and I tell you that I have three of everything, because I separate also the eggs. But that's just me, okay? You separate the eggs because for kosher reasons or for? Because for myself. I don't like the eggs, and... Uh-huh. Okay, all right. Um, okay, all right. Um, yeah, yeah, right. Well, so. Right. So that, I mean, that's, that's really important to recognize, uh, and, uh, you know, especially from my perspective on Kashrut is that, um, you know, our, our realities of, uh, of, of kitchen maintenance and, you know, all these things are, are really different than they were in the ancient and medieval world. Uh, that, that I think renders a lot of the issues that are typically considered to be, you know, 
complex cost root issues, it renders them really um, obsolete. Um, you know, so it, it uh, so, and we'll and we'll get into some. We talked about some of those last time, but we'll get into some of those tonight. Um, but you know, it, it certainly makes it you know easiest to have everything completely separate, right? You don't, and that's and that's generally you know, it's 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 both why uh, you know most cost root uh, supervisors require you know if you're making something dairy that it, you only have dairy in that kitchen and whatever, um, because it it makes it. Uh, easier to ensure what's happening uh, and doesn't require as much supervision. Um, on the other hand, uh, what else are you paying them for if not supervision? But that's a whole other question, right? So, um, uh, um, okay. Uh, so, what we spend a lot of time uh, talking about previously, and, 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 and these are really the issues that go into what we're talking about tonight, the, the primary issue in terms of cost route, in terms of, you know, when you talk about uh, um, cooking uh, meat and milk together the same as it was for uh, mixtures of forbidden foods with permitted foods um, is the principle of ta'am ke'ikar. Ta'am ke'ikar, which means um, uh, uh, taste is like the essence. Taste is like the essence. Which means that um, virtually everything is decided by, um, you know, virtually every question of, like, is this kosher or is this not kosher, is decided by, has one thing imparted a flavor to another thing? Now, that doesn't necessarily mean, can I taste the, you know, can I taste the essence of that dairy, you know, that milk in this meat stew that I'm making? It's, you know, from a legal perspective, do we understand that to count as imparting flavor, Right. Um, so those may, may be the same thing, but are not always the same thing. So it, so it just, you know, it just, it, it doesn't necessarily mean, okay, you know, it doesn't mean everybody's their own judge of it. That's, that's really more what it means. So, but that's the major principle, Tom Kikar. Flavor is like the essence, right? So what that, um, what that means is that things um, tend to only render uh, each other unkosher if they do what's called noten ta'am, if they impart flavor, Okay. Um, so, um, the way in which flavor is un usually understood to be imparted, um, is the primary way, is through heat, right? So what we would normally I, re refer to as cooking, right? Cooking is generally... So let's go to a raw restaurant. Uh, cooking is generally like the application of heat to food items, right? Um, so, uh, so, so that's why. So flavor it, and and it makes sense, right? You know, flavor is released when you when you cook things. So the idea of no tentam, the idea of imparting flavor, uh, is primarily uh, done through heat, right? Um, there are other methods too, right? So flavor can be imparted uh, through soaking. Um, which is in the Hebrew referred to by the term kavush kevmevushal. Um, so soaking is like cooking. Um, you know, so cooking is um, like I, you know, I I pour milk into my meat stew. Uh, soaking is like um, I I uh, take my steak and I put it in a bucket of uh, of milk, right, um, for a certain period of time. Um, salting, right? So if I salt items together, that, and, that, and it's really a little bit more like um, 
uh, it depends on how you're salting them because you know if you have like a big thing of salt and you have like your cheese over here and your steak over here it doesn't necessarily uh, mean that, that everything is rendered unkosher um, but if you like have them together and they're salt wrapped around them or something like that it does brining them for example right so if I have you know this goes is probably more relevant for like forbidden foods but if I have you know my uh, pickle jar uh, and I drop in some bacon in there, right? That mixture would then become unkosher, right? Or if I drop in my um, something that's already a mixture of meat and milk into that pickle jar, um, right? It, it would it would make my pickles unkosher, that sort of thing. So that's that's really in a lot of ways that's that's more like uh, salting than soaking because you're dealing with um, with brine. Um, and two issues that are really relevant for kosher kitchens, uh, which are aroma, um, uh, which in Hebrew is recha, um, and steam, which is zea. Right, which which are, you know, uh, noticeably similar to heat, but um, have their own. Uh, issues. They, they don't, you know, they don't require direct contact of substances in order to be effective. Um, excuse me, Rabbi, about aroma. What, what, I mean, if they come together, or? Right, so, um, so, I mean, you know, let's say I'm cooking um, a bread in the oven uh, with a brisket, Right, and the you know the the you know and the the smell of the brisket uh, um, uh, seeps into the bread, right? And so when you pull out the bread, it smells like brisket, right? Um, the whole whole house smells like brisket. That's the amazing thing about brisket, right? Uh, so uh, so that so that would uh, be considered as if it has uh, imparted flavor. Even if the even I mean, which makes sense because um, in a lot of ways your your smell impacts your taste buds um, or or works with your taste buds. So even if the bread doesn't actually taste like brisket, it might as well taste like brisket. Um, that doesn't mean it's not kosher. It just means you you may have made right. So this is another issue with uh, with with meat and and dairy um, imparting you know imparting flavor imparting you know, aroma, whatever, to one, to uh, another substance doesn't necessarily render it unkosher, but it might render it, it might, it, it might give it the status of, of the meat or the dairy, right? So meaning like the para food item, which is meaning neither meat or dairy, or the cooking utensil itself, right, which is not a, a meat or dairy thing inherently, um, right, can make it take on the status of meat or dairy. Um, okay, any, sorry, that, that last part might have been a little confusing. So, any so questions? You know, so, you now can't make a cheese sandwich with your bread that smells like brisket. Correct. Very Correct. Good. Very good call. You have a plug-in for brisket. You should. They, that would make a million dollars. That's a great... You should bring that to Shark Tank. Um, uh, okay, any, any questions about that so far? So, if... Like you were saying, if you used like a like a spaghetti sauce, a par of spaghetti sauce, or and then it, you waited twenty four hours and threw some ground beef into it to extend it, for example. Yeah. Like you talked about that last time. Right. That 
But you couldn't do the bread. You couldn't do that with the bread if it picked up the brisket odor, even if you waited 24 hours. Uh, hold on a second. Uh, if so, could the 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 bread itself? No, the bread itself would be meat through firsthand uh, imparting a flavor. That is meat bread. Um, so, so no, uh, you could not eventually uh, make a cheese sandwich out of it. Um, brisket sandwiches. But a brisket, yeah, brisket sandwich. You got to make brisket sandwiches. Sandwich you can make brisket. You can make until the cows come home. Um, until the cows go in your stomach. Okay. Uh, right. Okay. So let's. Let, so uh, I'm glad that, that Debbie raised that issue. I mean, th those are some of the issues that we're going to need to deal with. Yeah. Margarine. If it's non dairy, right. you can use it like a part, right? Correct. Correct. Okay. And butter is dairy. Correct. So you can, okay. Correct. It's gotten very hard to find mar margarine that is not OUD. Yeah. That's, that's true. You found me that one, I don't yeah. get you to look up more. Because I smart balance. I guess smart, uh, no, smart balance is smart, smart balance. Is, there's another good one I Earth used to get, though. Earth, Earth, Earth something. Earth balance. Earth balance. It's wonderful. But there was another one that I used to get. I used to get a big green tub. And it was cost com com comparable. And nobody sells the big green tub anymore. They sell the little ones that are expensive. So now I buy the OUD stuff for every day and right. just keep the others special. Right. Um, all right, so let's. So no, it's fine. So yeah, so did that answer your question? Yeah. So uh, um, part of I, I would say as a margarine can be part of, although sometimes it is dairy. Um, that's nothing inherent to what margarine is. It's just inherent to however the manufacturing process is to make it. You have to be careful. Olive oil is part of. Uh, butter is, unless it's, I can't believe it's not butter, uh, butter is, is dairy. Butter is dairy. All right. So, okay. So the, the major principle is Tom Ki'ikar. The, uh, the, the, um, the uh, related principle is no ten Tom, right? The, that something imparts flavor, uh, and it can do it in, in, in a number of ways. There are also, uh, there are mitigating factors to no-ten-tom. Um, the major one uh, is uh, known as uh, batel bashishim. We talked about this um, in the past two sessions. Um, so there's another, there's another kind of, uh, uh, the main, main category is B-tool, which means nullification. Uh, and we talked about uh, something uh, called afilu be'elef lo batel, which means that uh, even uh, if there is, you know, um, a, a thousand times uh, greater volume of a permitted substance than the forbidden one, um, the forbidden substance is still not nullified. Um, and there are certain forbidden foods that are afilu be'elef lo batel, um, you know, whole, anim whole unkosher animals are, are one example. Um, uh, but, uh, but, but when it comes to um, uh, meat and dairy, that principle um, uh, rarely, if ever, applies. The principle of nullification that would apply is batel b'shishim, which means that um, if... 
um, if uh, uh, an if if if, uh, if say dairy were to fall into uh, a mixture of meat or vice versa, and uh, the the uh, mixture of one is uh, more than sixty times the volume of the other, right, the mixture of the, the 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 mixture of the primary thing, meaning the thing that uh, the other thing fell into, was sixty times the volume or more um, of the the thing that fell into it, um, then. Uh, it doesn't render it unkosher. You look like that. The way I phrased that was perplexing. So should I restate no, that? No, no, oh, okay. It wasn't. I was something else. Okay. Um, <laughs> I just something Let's not talk about the spoon yet. Uh, the spoon is related but different. Okay. But let's just talk about the food items themselves. Right. So, so your a piece of cheese falls into your beef stew. Right? If the beef stew is more than 60 times the volume of the piece of cheese that fell in, the mixture is not rendered unkosher. If the beef stew is, let's say there's 60 ounces of stew and one ounce of, uh, of, of cheese, let's say. Right? But, uh, but if there are 59 ounces of stew and one ounce of cheese, then, then everything becomes not kosher, the, the, the stew and the cheese. Uh, and uh, and, and uh, for that matter, the pot, too. Um, um, Okay, and, and we also talked about, when we were talking about issues of bitul, um, uh, we talked about the principle, ein mivatlin isor lechatchila, which means that you can't, you're, you're not supposed to, uh, um, from the onset, knowingly try to nullify a prohibition. Right, so that means that uh, even though I know uh, that if a one ounce of cheese drops into sixty ounces of beef stew, that everything is fine. I can't decide. Well, because I know that I'm going to drop an ounce of cheese into sixty ounces of beef stew. If I do that, it renders it unkosher. Right? Only if it's accidental or unintentional in some way. Make sense? Mm-hmm. I hope so. Oh, boy. I'm going to have to ask you for, before the test. <laughs> right. So let me see if I can make that a little bit more clear. Um, so if I, if, you know, if I'm cooking my beef stew and, uh, and, and all of a sudden my daughter, you know, runs in with her cheese stick, this actually might be a scenario that would actually, I never really thought before this, I'm like, I'm like, in what world would this actually happen? But now I know how it would actually happen, right? So I'm cooking my, I'm cooking my beef stew, my daughter runs in the kitchen with, with her, right, with her, right, it's flying through the air and it lands in the beef stew, right, if it is, uh, less than one part in 60, uh, then, then everything is, then it's fine. It's fine. I mean, if I can fish out the cheese, it would be better if I could fish out the cheese, but, right. Um, so you said the next time you made it, you said, Lila, you want to run through the kitchen and make Here's a cheese trip? stick. <laughs> That's R- not right. Correct. Correct. <laughs> Got it? Right. All right. It's so funny. I, I mean, my wildest dreams, with learning this stuff, I was like, I was like, when is this ever going to really happen? I totally could see that actually happening. It's just the reason why Torah scholars are supposed to be married. Right, so they yeah. Kids that understand this. Real world stuff, right. Um, okay, so... Um, uh, so that's that's really important uh, uh, in in terms of dealing with um, kashrut issues that arise in a kitchen, right? because it means that uh, in many cases, if not most cases, um, accidental mixtures or um, uh, 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 can be perfectly fine. But if they're not accidental, they may not be fine. Sometimes a non-accidental mixture might not, might also be okay, depending on what it is, right? Um, but but we'll, we'll get to that. Um, 
what else would I, did I want to talk? Ah, um, so there is um, another way in which um, uh, uh, mixtures of some kind um, might be okay. Um, and that's when, you know, I, I mentioned that uh, um, uh, what, make, what renders one thing, uh, what, renders an issue, what, what renders foods uh, unkosher in the realm of meat and milk is no ten tam, right, it imparts flavor, right, which is also why batal bashishim works, because it's presumed that one part in 60 would be an insignificant imparting of flavor. But there's a, 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 a halachic principle uh, called no ten ta'am bar no ten ta'am, which literally means uh, it, um, um, it gives a flavor the son of giving a flavor. Right? So it's second degree imparting a flavor. So second degree imparting a flavor um, uh, is... Um, uh, I'm trying to think of a way of defining it without using an example. Um, uh, when... Uh, um, uh, when when an um, when an item uh, is uh, when, when flavor could be imparted to an item through second degree contact, right? So um, uh, so uh, second degree second degree contact might be something like. Um, um, something simple, like yeah. Um, <laughs> second degree contact might be something like um, um, I have um, uh, my uh, bread that was in the meat oven. Um, and, uh, um, I have my bread that was in the meat oven and it is, uh, no longer hot and I put cheese on it. Now I can't eat those things together because one is clearly meat and one is milk, but does it render the cheese unkosher? There was no heat. Right? Correct, right? So you can take the cheese off and eat it. Right, right. So, um, so, uh, so I guess that I mean, the better, the best examples of no ten tom, bar, no ten tom deal with utensils, right? Right. Okay. So, uh, this is uh, the definition of no ten tom bar no ten tom, or sometimes called not bar not by Rabbi Binyamin Forst in uh, the Laws of Kashrut, which is a good volume. Um, so here's what he says, okay? Um, uh, food cooked in a pot infuses its taste into the pot. When another food is subsequently cooked in that pot, even after it has been scrubbed clean, the original taste is transmitted to the second food. The secondary transfer, food to pot to food, is known as no ten tam bar no ten tam. Presumably, the taste is weakened as it travels from matter to matter. 
before we discuss the halachic ramifications of Noth and Tom, Bar Noth and Tom, it's important. Okay, so, um, so uh, okay, food which is fried, roasted, or baked in a pot or pan affects uh, an, infu- an infusion of taste, right? That's Noth and Tom. When another food is subsequently fried, etc., in that same pot, some of the original taste from, let's say, you know, fried chicken in that pot, it put chicken flavor into the pot, right? And then I, you know, the, I clean the pot, whatever, right? It's presumed that some of the flavor from that original chicken is going to go back into whatever I next cook in, in that pot, although it's a minimal amount of the flavor. It's right, less, it's less potent than the original flavor. Uh, so the, um, the infu- so let's say I, I'm then cooking, you know, steak in that pan or whatever pot. Um, the, so some of the chicken flavors get ready for, now for, for a steak after the chicken, there's not a problem. Um, if I'm, if I then want, if I, if I cook, fried the chicken in the pot and then I wanted to cook lasagna in the pot, right, uh, then it would be a problem because the chicken flavor would impact the, uh, the lasagna, right, uh, rendering it. Rendering unkosher and then rendering the whole pot unkosher because now I have meat and dairy lasagna uh, in a uh, in in a in a pot, right? Um, but what? Yeah. But if you have separate utensils, that's not. Yeah. Uh, it will, so so it becomes an issue. So it becomes an issue in a couple of ways. The first way it becomes an issue is um, uh, um, issues of um, you know you. Uh, accidentally use the wrong utensil uh, or the wrong dish or something like that. Um, that's one way it can become an issue. The other way it becomes an issue is in your in, in the scenario you discussed when you're talking about parv stuff. Oh. Cooking parv stuff. Right? So but the, the infusion of taste from food to pot to food. The infusion of taste from food to pot to food is not bar not. No tentam bar no tentam. Had the second food been boiled in the pot, we would have an additional... Okay, that's fine. Um... When, uh, um, uh, let's see if there's anything else I need to talk about. So if you were to make chicken soup in a pot from Harv's powder, it, it would leave the taste, it would be a taste, it wouldn't necessarily be chicken per se, because it wasn't the chicken that was cooked. Say, does it taste like chicken or does it taste like parv chicken powder? Say that, say that one more time. Sorry. Say it. If you ate chicken soup from the parv chicken soup powder right. in a pot, like if you're going to choose a pot to do that in, you know, would it be the Palatian pot or the milk pot that would make the most sense? Even though it's... Well, I mean, it wouldn't. It wouldn't. It wouldn't. It wouldn't matter because the 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 fl- the, the the parv chicken flavor is not considered to be actual chicken flavor. Right, so uh, so so it wouldn't ma- it wouldn't matter in terms of rendering the thing unkosher or not. What it would matter in terms of is can I serve it at a meat meal or at a at a dairy meal? Um, and uh, for, I don't want to be too general about this uh, because uh, it's it's certainly possible in certain scenario that you could serve even if you made that chicken soup that par of chicken soup in a meat pot. That uh, that it could only be used at a meat meal. Right. It's also conceivable under certain circumstances that it could also be used at a dairy meal, and we'll talk about this in a minute. Okay. Yeah. About glass dishes, what do you do with them if, by any chance, you don't have two sets? Right. So, um, so, so, 
and we talked about this I think a little bit last time. I mean, part of the uh, part of the issue of uh, dishes is that different kinds of uh, materials are are understood to absorb and impart flavor differently depending on their level of porousness. Um, metal is considered generally to be sort of like intermediate level porousness, right? So uh, as opposed to earthenware that is very porous and glass that is less porous than uh, metal, right? Which means that um, which means that earthenware is generally considered to be not kosherable uh, once it becomes trafe, and also once it becomes meat or di- meat or dairy, it can't. It has to stay that way, right? Uh, metal, on the other hand. Um, can be switched from one to the other. It doesn't have to stay. It doesn't stay trafe once it's made trafe. You can you can kosher it, right? So the principle for uh, most metal things is kebolo kach polto. The way it absorbed the flavor is the way it releases the flavor. Um, so that usually means uh, for things you know that you were, that that involve direct that you used to that you cook with direct fire um, have to be uh, can be koshered but using a method called libun, uh, which means to uh, to uh, heat until red hot. Um, some, something that uh, is uses liquid to cook um, is usually koshered uh, by. Um, uh, uh, by irui, which which means uh, to uh, pour boiling water over, um, so that's anyway that's uh, but glass because it's considered to not be particularly porous uh, uh, can uh, generally be interchanged for meat or dairy because it's not absorbing the flavor and therefore risking imparting that flavor back out to the food. Now, what it does mean though. Um, and this this gets kind of complicated, but it does mean that um, a, a um, you know if I have a if I have a um, a, a an, an item, but this is this is where notes and tom bar notes and tom is relevant. If I have a um, if I have a um, a, a pot of uh, plain spaghetti, let's say, which is a power food item, it was cooked in a dare in a in a meat pot. At worst. The meat flavor in that spaghetti is no tentam bar no tentam, right? Uh, at worst, it might not even be that, uh, be, for reasons we'll get into hopefully in, in a minute. Um, which means that because it's no tentam bar no tentam, because it's such a, a weak flavor of the uh, of the meat pot, um, it means that I can then put it on a dairy uh, dish and not impact either the status of the spaghetti or the dairy dish. Right, so that's 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 how no, that's why notes and tom bar notes and tom is a mitigating factor uh, in terms of uh, kosher roots are making something trafe because it it means that it's it, it, it had a flavor imparted to it but it's a but it's a weak, weakened version of that flavor uh, and so therefore not as halakhically relevant um, as um, uh, as a first degree imparting a flavor. <laughs>